you. Thank you, uh, worship team and Brian. And uh, you know, got to watch Brian uh, when he's uh, playing that bass. He's uh, he's dancing a little too much, and that's when he steps on that chord. And uh, you know, Baptists we're used to the water, but the dancing is uh, well. You know, the jury's out on that, right? Well, listen, it's good to be with you, and I have a text I want to share with you this morning from Isaiah chapter 61. When I read this text uh, the last a little bit, um, I've uh, wondered why I didn't preach on it all season long. There's so much here. It's a beautiful text, and um, I, I just am excited to share it with you. It's a text about hope. The folks in uh, Israel had been, uh, in Judah had been carried off into captivity, they had been um, punished for their wrongdoings. Important for us to understand that. And yet, God still is not letting go of covenant. God is stubborn about covenant. They have broken the covenant, they've been faithless, but He's still faithful. In fact, the term righteousness appears in our text rather prominently. And uh, I would say to you, there's a whole lot about righteousness, and it's used in a lot of different nuances. But, but I think one sort of steady motif throughout the Bible is righteousness is used to describe a kind of covenant loyalty. When you make a relationship, both parties have typically obligations they make to the other partner. Now, there's different kinds of covenants, and not all covenant partners are equal by any means. But typically speaking, when you make a covenant, you have an obligation. There are certain rules that are spelled out. A marriage covenant is like that. And there are rules that are spelled out, some that have to be perhaps negotiated after marriage, right? You learn about new things that come up. And uh, each partner then has things they must bring to the covenant for the covenant to work. And when a person keeps their promises, is loyal to their covenant partner, does what they promised to do in the covenant, you call that person righteous. And that covenant loyalty is the real thing. Now, here's where God comes in. He has a sort of righteousness that's like a super-righteousness. Uh, right? When we make a covenant and somebody you know, a, a friend, betrays a trust, you may well just break that friendship and say, that's a loss and I'll not incur that loss anymore. You may dust your hands of that and leave. But some people are so loyal to covenant that when the covenant partner does them wrong, they still hold out hope that the covenant can be put back together. They're not just righteous in the sense that they've done what they were supposed to do, but they're righteous in a sort of super sense in the sense that they've kept loyalty alive. And they've done and bared the wrongdoing of the covenant partner that they were supposed to be able to trust, but they've kept the covenant alive by doing what the other was supposed to do and bearing when the other covenant partner did not come through, that person is righteous in a way that's just, well, it doesn't connect with our word righteousness. We think of that as what, merciful or, or gracious or something, right? Uh, somebody who's so given to covenant. Now listen, the image here is this. Uh, covenant is taken seriously. Uh, Judah was 
punished. They went through all this exile. They went through all this humiliation. They went through all the soul-searching questions that seen Jerusalem go down and being carted off to Babylon, uh, provoked in them, and struggles about faith and struggles about identity and all these hardships. They went through all of that. But notice God wasn't through with them. And he speaks this word of hope. And Isaiah captures beautifully these words of hope and restoration. Words of hope and restoration. You might remember the servant songs, right? About one who is going to come and going to do God's work and so on. And now in the text we have before you, although this person isn't named the servant. And there's real specialists, by the way, who say this one is not described in a consistent way with the servant. But the truth is, I, I think the servant's more loosely defined than most people. So uh, I, I take it as, as one in keeping. But it may well be in Isaiah's day that the person we're talking about in these first few verses is the prophet himself who's going to come and make this announcement on God's behalf. Somebody stirred by the Spirit to give God's word that the work is going to be restored and restored in a way that you can't imagine. And then as we go a little further in Isaiah, it seems to me it's not just talking about restoring there in the exile, but a final sort of restoration, a looking forward. I think it meant something in Isaiah's day. But you'll notice Jesus, when he inaugurates his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he gets up and I think we're to read it. It's the text selected for the day, some circumstance or happenstance, right? Hardly. He gets up and Jesus reads this text, the very text we're going to read. And it's sort of the launching of his ministry. And he says, when he reads it, you want to know when this is all happening? Do you want to know when this is all kicking into gear? Jesus says, it's happening right here. When you're hearing me do it, say it, speak it, it's occurring. In my reading and in my coming, this great thing is unleashed. And so it's a text that we read in Isaiah's day, but it's also a text that we read later in light of who Jesus is as someone who fulfills this like no one else can. And so would you bear with me? We'll have a long reading, but bear with me. It's so beautiful. Follow along. We'll begin there, of course, in verse 1, chapter 61 of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the acceptable year of the Lord, some of you may have in your translations, and a day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. And they will be called, listen to this, not just righteous, but what? Oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor and glory. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. 
and they will renew their ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Now in verse 5 and following, the image is this, that now it looks like the whole nation of the people are now going to serve a priestly function. And they're going to be doing this priestly function. And the work that they would have done, now it seems that the nations will do. Because the nations are being drawn to this great display of God's glory. What God is doing in Israel displays God's glory. But notice the world is drawn to see the glory and splendor of God displayed. So here, read these verses with me. About 5 through 9 has this same motif. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. And you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in the riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit the double portion in your land, and an everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing, and in my faithfulness I will reward my people, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are the people of the Lord, that the people the Lord has blessed. And I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in the Lord. We restore, we get back to the voice of the prophet, it seems. For he has clothed me in the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adores his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For, uh, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes the seed to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. And this is this vision, this vision again that it makes sense in Isaiah's day, but makes its maybe greater sense when we see the story of Jesus play out. And there's a certain way of thinking here that what happened I think in Isaiah's day does not completely satisfy it when you see it play out in Jesus's ministry now you sense that in his first coming and his second coming all of these things that are promised will now be satisfied well there's so much I'd like to tell you about uh, interesting things about the Messiah here and and whether this is the suffering servant, um, and uh, so many things that are, that are worthwhile looking. But if I could, let me just give you a, a couple of images of what this new great work is going to look like. And, and first of all, I, I, I draw this notion here. Do you see those verses right early on? Do you see that kind of collection of images? There's the brokenhearted people that are broken apart and they're going to be put together again and they're going to be bound up again. They're going to be made whole again. And there's captives 
And this one says, when God comes and does this great new work, when this new thing is happening, you've served this, your penalty has been paid and so on. Now look ahead, look ahead what God is doing. This restoration is going to look like this. You were captives and now the prophet proclaims that you are free. You were trapped in the darkness, perhaps in prison, and now you've been shown the light. And I don't know about you, but you put together those four, three or four images together, and I, I think you get a, a pretty rich picture of what gone wrongness looks like and what the consequences of sin and the consequences of being apart from God look like. And we're coming apart, and yet we're trapped, and, and we can't be free to be the people God has called us to be. And, and we stumble around in a darkness, and we're, we're uh, without the ability to kind of break out of that funk and out of that ignorance to see the light. And again and again, these images prove to be very fruitful, describing the brokenness of our lives. And the idea is this. What God is doing in Jesus Christ is making good on these promises offered so long ago. And still to this day, when people come to Jesus Christ, these very images are the ones they, they describe. They talk about somebody who is sort of turned on the light. They talk about being bound to something they could never leave and, 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 and never break free of. But in Christ, they come to be free. They talk about being the broken person, all apart and injured, and then Jesus, like the good Samaritan in the story, coming and binding them together and helping them. But the images of the gone wrongness of this is the image. Uh, these are the images of the gone wrongness of the world, of the heaviness of sin and the, the sin that we bear and the, and the heaviness that holds us down. We live in a world, and they're defiant and proud, and I know we're scared of them to a certain extent, but I just want to tell you, when you look to see them for who they are, they are the ones who are so broken, so lost, so trapped. And it's Christians who so often through our history have done the business of binding up the broken. And when we do that, we're showing our faith. We're showing this faith that we have found the one who truly can heal. And we know that one is coming again and then all our enemy's work will be defeated and will be complete in Christ. And we experience the, in the here and the now some tangible experiences of this redemption and this new life. And we participate in it because we participate in it because we look forward to the day when it comes in fullness. And Christians are the ones who have bought into this. I, I don't know, it's so hard to capture this uh, long story. You need a church history class, which I try to do, but I'm not sure how that church history class does justice to this either. But let me try my hand at it. I want to say to you, Christians were some of the first people we really know about in history that cared in a systematic way for the poor. Now, I'm not saying people didn't share with other people, but I'm saying to have a systematic sort of sense of duty that in your town you would care for the poor. Did you know Christians did that? 
In, in fact, there's some uh, really able historians that say that, that there's not really a concept of the poor like we think of the poor today. There's not really a concept of the poor until Christians came along because nobody ever thought of them collectively like that before. But there are great pastors in the earliest days of the church who sensed that if this text were true, and if they are the agents and they are the ones who have been made whole and been redeemed, then they have to be the agents in the world to bind up the broken. Now, I know what you're thinking. Brother Randy, I feel sort of broken myself. And I know. And I just want to say to you, I want you to get the care that you need. Do everything you can to get the care you need and to, and to receive the healing you need. But I warn you, don't wait till you're well to start helping others. There's something about sharing in the work that God is doing. In fact, so often, I, I think we teach our folks to, to go the wrong way. We're so into self-fulfillment and, and, and as if though you have some stamped identity deep inside yourself and you've got to explore that and so on. I, I'm sorry, I just don't have confidence in that kind of self-help. The truth is this, I think you find out who you are by being obedient to Jesus. And I don't think you really have a clue to who you are apart from who Jesus says you are. And somehow serving and helping is very important in the equation. And so I think of a collection of ministers back in Turkey. Uh, long ago in the 300s, uh, they, uh, two brothers and, and then another uh, a friend joined them. And they're uh, instrumental in doing so many things. They really... Uh, uh, they shore up our creeds that we have and that we celebrate, that all Christians share, things about the Incarnation and the Trinity. They, they do so much for us and so on. But what's amazing is this. They were very programmatic. They did what other Christians did by instinct, but they did it programmatically. They made it their job to take care of people who were poor. And it gave an authenticity and authenticity to who they were and the message they proclaimed. It makes sense if you've got a God who's coming and standing in front of you and saying, this is true about you, that you would share in the work of extending that binding, that healing, that liberty, and that alleviating that darkness. And so they fed people. They cared for people. Uh, did you know that uh, hospitals really haven't been around in history? You know, really, what we think of as a hospital is a Christian invention, and maybe the, some of the first people that have a version of it that we would recognize are these same fathers, these same dear Christian leaders in Turkey, a guy named Basil and his brother Gre uh, Gregory and his, uh, his friend Gregory, and, and they and their sister were amazing ministers and they showed the church about caring. Later on, as this idea takes in Rome, there arises an ugly, rebellious sort of a, a emperor. Uh, after several Christian emperors, uh, there arises this one gentleman, and he wants to throw things back uh, uh, to worshiping the pagans before. And he pours all kinds of money, and he does all kinds of mischief persecuting the church to his amazement, no matter how much money he pours into the pagan worship. The pagans can never care for the poor. 
and it's stifling to him. He wonders, how is it that these Christians can care for other people? But these pagans, no matter how much money I give them, they can never care for the poor. It's an important lesson for us to realize that there's a great, great privilege. And some people do this uh, miraculously and wonderfully. Uh, you know of Mother Teresa, right? Uh, it, it, you might remember, though, she started with the simplest of things. In fact, people kind of hated her and mocked her, if you don't know. It's very sad. Uh, Christians, and, and, and so many, I think, people with good sense, uh, uh, praise her and celebrate her. But uh, there's a, a long list of enemies that try to just discredit her. But you know, again and again, in a place where dead people are lying everywhere and people walk over the dead routinely in their business, she just looked down at that dead and dying sick person and said there's something in that person worth something to God. And you can't just look at them and say there's no helping them even if there is no helping them. I should treat them with a dignity. I should be able to give them a human touch. And her work initially wasn't invested so much in healing. It was invested in caring for people who were destined to die. There's something right when Christians do this. And it's not just those who are, are famous and so on, like, like Mother Teresa, uh, uh, who, who care for people. Um, I, I'm taken by this title of a book written by Tony Hendra. He's a, sort of a, uh, a British uh, TV writer and personality of some, some standing, I understand. Uh, he wrote this book, Father Joe is the man who saved my life. Now, I have to tell you, I've just glanced at the book. I, I would love to see more of it. Uh, but the Father Joe he talks about is a Benedictine monk. He met him when he was 14. He always sensed that the, his monk friend, Father Joseph, Father Joe as he calls him, was always plugged into him, always heard him, always attentive. He found a great deal of success and then some not so subtle defeat. Tony went on to lose his first marriage. They divorced, he remarries, but then he finds some drugs. He hits bottom, he attempts suicide. And through various chapters in his life, he kept remembering that the one person who seemed to really express care for him again and again was this Father Joe. So he goes back to Father Joe from his depths, and the same Father Joe who has loved him, who's cared for him, who's tried to encourage him all along is still there. And by God's grace... His second marriage is healed and restored. And then his own faith that he lost along the way is restored. And now he practices his faith. But he says his journey back to wholeness came from one person whose stubborn, consistent love was always there. 
And he knew Father Joe always heard him, and he knew Father Joe always cared. And he knew no matter how far he'd fallen, he could still go back to his Father Joe. And I just want to tell you, binding the broken is not a process for the superheroic people like Mother Teresa. But it's the work of every Christian. And we don't have to be spectacular. What we represent is spectacular. You get what I'm saying to you? you? You don't have to do anything miraculous. If you just love and listen and care and keep speaking the word of hope, I want to tell you, loving in the name of Christ is spectacular. And that's how people get bound together to this very day. The second image I'd like to share with you is this. This image about righteousness. I've already talked about righteousness. How it's about covenant, I think, largely. If you look in those last verses, you, you see sort of two images. Uh, one, uh, God's going to drape you with salvation. God's going to put a coat of righteousness on you. And then you read another verse, and then the image is what? God is going to what? Grow you up like a sprout, like a seed, like something coming out of the garden. And the garden seems to be given credit to the life that comes and surges and finds expression in the life of this plant. And those two images, I think, are important for us, and I'd like to encourage you. The truth is, I think you could parcel a good bit of church history uh, right with these two images. Protestants are the ones that are kind of famous for saying, you didn't earn righteousness, God gave you the righteousness. It's like he puts a coat on you, and it may not be a perfect fit when he puts it on you, right? But he, he calls you righteous, and he's the covenant one who keeps the righteousness even when we have failed. And when, when we just turn to him in covenant faith, he's there, and he puts the mantle of covenant keeper on us. And we're declared to be righteous, and we're one of his people. We're made to be alive, Some others in the fam church family have suggested that we've lost another dimension of this righteousness. Righteousness is not just what God puts on you, but righteousness is something that kind of is done in you. And the God who declares you righteous or the God who grants you this covenant mantle of righteousness and faithful member of the covenant, the person who takes you back and restores you to covenant privilege is the same one who's working in his spirit through you. And righteousness is something that's not just like an external coat we put on. It's something that happens within us. You see, the plan idea and the code idea, I think, are really very kind of complimentary and God does put this mantle on us when we certainly don't deserve it and we're not certainly there but he puts it on us anyway but he also works in us to bring us to this place where we can become more and more like the person he's declared us to be and righteousness happens well it happens like a cloak that's put on you it may not seem to fit you at the time but it's a coat that's put on you. But righteousness is also something that God does in you. To stir this covenant loyalty, to stir your faithfulness, to stir your integrity, and to make you a partner who loves God in return. Not only is loved by God, but learns to love God in response 
and makes you through that love that God's spirit puts in your heart a loyal covenant partner and you become righteous like God has said you're righteous. And we need both of those images of righteousness. And I want to say to you, if this text is true, if these first few verses can be read out by Jesus, and that's what Jesus says the program is, and that's what Jesus says the initiative is, then it calls us to be agents of the binding of the broken in the world. And it causes us to be recipients and share in the great covenant love. And let me assure you this, you do not earn this coat. You do not deserve this coat. And there's a real sense you don't, this coat doesn't fit you. But God in his grace can put this coat on you and make you his own. And God in his stubborn grace works in your heart to stir you and move you. And this righteousness can come in and through us and become like something internal in us. Something vibrant that's growing and happening within us that God is responsible for. We, we don't get the credit. It's, it's, the, it's the ground. It's, the, it's, it's God who does the growing and God who does the blessing. And both of these images are so important. And I challenge you, I challenge you. Not only to be grateful for the recipient of this cloak and wear it with a sense of humility and pride, but also to be attentive to the Spirit's work in you. And one of the things I think we'll do, there are many others, when the Spirit really gets a hold of us, is we will want to bind what's broken. We want to nurture who's broken. And when we do that in the name of Christ, we're right there in the sweet spot of what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in our own hearts. The text starts this way. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind the brokenhearted. To proclaim the freedom of the captives, to release from the darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let those words Jesus said were true in his own day. Let them ring true in our hearts 